Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the North Forker Podcast. I'm Grant Parpan. We're doing something a little different this time around. I'll be passing the microphone off to my colleague, Tara Smith, in a moment to speak with longtime Bedell Sellers winemaker, Rich Olson Harbick. This particular episode came about through an email I received from Rich a couple months back about a special event Long Island Sustainable Wine Growing was hosting. Last week, the group hosted NASA climate scientist Dr. Benjamin Cook for a lecture titled Wine and Climate from the Past to the Future. Dr. Cook is a climate scientist at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He specializes in the study of drought and the role of the land, surface, and vegetation in the climate system, including how climate change is likely to affect ecosystems and agriculture. His lecture, which Tara covered for next month's issue of Long Island Wine Press, illuminated the historic relationship between drought temperature and the timing of wine harvest and examine how this relationship has evolved over time due to the influence of climate change. Obviously, a lot of discussion centered on Long Island and the North Fork, so Tara and I thought it'd be a good idea to invite Rich uh, Olson Harbick, who helped found Long Island Sustainable Wine Growing, into our little studio here to talk a bit about the organization, last week's lecture, and what he's seeing out there in the vineyards and the cellar in terms of climate change. With three decades of experience making wine here, Rich has a wealth of knowledge on this particular wine region. He's an incredibly thoughtful and articulate speaker on this particular topic, so uh, I really enjoyed listening to this conversation, and I think you will too. So uh, here's Rich Olson Harbick of Bedell Cellars and our Tara Smith talking about wine and climate. You helped to found the Long Island Sustainable Wine Growing Group. Mm -hmm. Uh, How long ago was that? We started that in, well, we started the LISW group in 2012. All right. And just kind of thinking back to the history of growing grapevines on Long Island, I think the first vines were planted in 73. So mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. 50 years later, like, can you talk about the, the need for sustainability and, and the thought process behind forming that group and how that evolved a little bit? Well, it was an effort that was uh, developed from the ground up, literally. And the initial efforts were uh, through a statewide program called Vine Balance, which was developed in the uh, early 2000s with the efforts of Cornell Cooperative Extension, uh, Alice Wise, uh, our own uh, viticultural researcher in Riverhead, along with other uh, specialists in upstate New York. And they developed a book for best practices on a statewide level. Uh, But as we all know, Long Island is much different than upstate New York in terms of its climate and its weather and its growing season. We grow different kinds of grapes than they do. Um, Upstate New York is as different from Long Island as Germany is to France. Uh, It's a big big state. So we felt we needed to uh, develop this program locally because a big part of sustainability revolves around local conditions, um, and that's why it works so well. And so a group of us uh, got together to begin that process the end of 2011, beginning of 2012, when we saw that there was not going to be a good way to do this on a statewide level, at least at first, especially with having a third-party inspection component, which makes some people nervous, uh, especially when you're developing a new program. Nobody wants to be told what to do and how to do it necessarily, especially farmers. That is a cat herding situation. Yeah. So luckily we had uh, a number of passionate, dedicated people. Alice Wise in, at Cornell was a big part of that. Larry Perrine at Channing Daughters, Barbara Shin at Shin Estate, and Jim Thompson at Martha Clara and myself sat down and hammered this out. Uh, so there were only uh, 
four members initially. Uh, we felt that it was something that if we build it, they will come. And, and they, they did. And now they, you have over 20 members? We have 22. 22. Wow. And 1,000 acres in the program. Wow. So we're roughly half of the planted acreage on Long Island is in the sustainability program right now. That's great. So and we're very proud of it. Yeah, uh, you should be. And you were just recognized by the state, the New York Wine and Grape Foundation, um, for those efforts in sustainability. That's a pretty big deal. Yep, we're proud of that one, too. To answer your question, why did we do this? Uh, we felt it was important. The timing was right. Um, the issue of sustainability was becoming more and more uh, part of the public lexicon around a number of other issues, not just about wine production. Um, sustainability essentially is coming up with a way to not foul your own nest in common language. Uh, and so we felt strongly that it was better to get out ahead of this we are not in the middle of nowhere. We have a lot of neighbors in our region. It's a semi-rural area. It's not uh, away from everybody. And we also have a sole source aquifer yeah. that we pull our drinking water from, and that's the only aquifer that we have. Uh, all of that became an important issue, and we felt um, necessary for us to move forward as a wine district, mm -hmm. as a responsible um, uh, grower and a and responsible um, steward of the land for all of us to pay attention to. And it's not like any of this is very complicated. It's just a matter of um, being mindful of what we're doing, yeah. paying attention to what we're doing, um, and, uh, and monitoring um, our people that work for us, mm -hmm. taking care of them properly, mm -hmm. and um, also trying to be economically successful. All of that's part of sustainability. Right. It's the environment, it's the economy, and it's people. So we are talking about sustainability today. Um, and a couple days ago, you hosted that really engaging lecture um, over at the Cornell Cooperative, um, which was given by Dr. Benjamin Cook. So he was, uh, mm -hmm. he's a NASA climate scientist, which I thought was really interesting, um, who studies the impacts of climate change on um, viticulture kind of broadly. When I typically think of climate change, I don't know, I, I think of the glaciers and sea level rise and uh, coral reefs. Um, I don't necessarily think about wine, so this was interesting for me. Um, I'm sure you guys are kind of more tuned into that, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but I was just kind of hoping to get, get some of your thoughts um, on your takeaways from his talk. Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing about wine and climate change is that wine has been recorded for hundreds and hundreds of years. We have information, weather data, mm -hmm. harvest data, uh, kept by the early vintners in the old world. A lot of them were part of the church, and the church was really good at keeping records mm -hmm. about what happened and when. And um, so, as Dr. Cook explained, uh, wine production and wine growing is somewhat of a canary in the coal mine for the effects of climate change, mm -hmm. because you can see where it has come from and where it's going. Um, I first started to study this issue in the early 90s. I did my master's thesis on global warming on Long Island at Stony Brook. Oh, wow. At that time, they were calling it global warming. Yeah. 
that became something of a, a misnomer sure. because people got confused whenever it got cold outside. Right. They started to make fun of global warming. Right, well, it's, right. you know, it's zero degrees outside. What happened to it? In fact, that still is go- that still is still going happens. on, unfortunately. Right. Uh, it's a misunderstanding of it. So what really it, it is about is climate change mm-hmm. because it will not only just get warmer, but uh, some of the differences would, will, re- will um, result in really cold temperatures sometimes. Um, but overall, we're seeing a warming of um, the climate, uh, the water, um, and the temperatures that we're experiencing on land. And Dr. Cook's talk was about that and how it affects wine production specifically. Um, I hear about it constantly as well from other winemakers that come visit me at Bedell. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have lots of uh, European uh, wine producers that travel to New York City. Mm-hmm. And they'll often come out and, and stop by and see what's going on in our part of the country. And all of them talk about how they're picking fruit much earlier than they used to. They're dealing with mm-hmm. a little bit more um, temperamental weather than they used to. Um, and so they're feeling the effects. And, and we, for myself, from my own personal standpoint, I can see that happening as well. Yeah, so you've been out here um, 30 years, and, and there's always variation year to year. I think that that's another thing that gets... 38, actually. Oh, 38, wow. Um, that's another thing that gets kind of tied up is is weather versus climate. Um, there's obviously a variation with weather from year to year. It, you know, affects every vintage. Um, but in your 38 years, um, have you started, have you begun to see any of the impacts um, of just sure. a change in climate? And can you talk about that a little bit? For sure. In fact, uh, another scientist that uh, worked at NASA, the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, Anthony Delginio, wrote a piece on this back in the 80s. Uh, and He's a friend of mine, and I've had discussions with this about him, and he told me back in the 80s that by the end of the 90s, you're going to start seeing this. And it was pretty true. We can see that the temperatures have gotten warmer. We have a longer growing season now than we did um, back in the 80s, for example. Sure, sure. We're picking fruit anywhere from one to two weeks earlier than we did with the same levels of ripeness and sometimes more. Mm -hmm. And I think for us, initially, we're seeing... Uh, a benefit. Uh, to, I was going to ask, yeah. To, to a large extent. Right. In the quality of the wines that we're making because of this. Mm-hmm. Whether that's going to continue, I don't know. But right now... It could swing too far. It's a net, it's a net gain for us because yeah. we have a little bit more heat, uh, we have a little bit more sun, and that's what grapes like. Sure. The kicker is that we can always... We, we can expect a lot more torrential rainstorms. Yeah. Um, which the grapevines do not enjoy. Which we don't enjoy. <laughs> right. Yeah. But this is something we have absolutely no control over sure. at the moment. Yeah. We're maybe maybe like six weeks away from bud burst. I don't know. You start to see that in late April into early May. Um, is there a chance that could happen earlier because we've had a mild, more mild winter? And does that have any effect on the overall harvest? It can. We don't usually like to see earlier yeah. bud breaks because earlier bud breaks uh, expose us to the dangers of spring frost. Okay. So one of the advantages of growing grapes in this area is we typically don't have very early bud break. Got it. Um, and so we, the cold water of the Sound and the Bay 
keeps them from growing too early. Right. Which is a good thing, ultimately. Yeah, because our, our climate um, is really moderated by, by the Atlantic. Completely. And That's the whole ballgame. Yeah, yeah. So we're seeing warmer temperatures, um, which you said is having a net positive. Um, one of the if- impacts of climate change um, that we hear about a lot are weather extremes. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, like you mentioned, more torrential rain pours, um, more intense sort of storms. Are there any years that, that come to mind for that? Um, well, <clears throat> every vintage here is different, mm-hmm. and it continues to be that way. Um, we're a temperate maritime climate. It's one of the things I love about the area because it's never the same mm-hmm. one year to the next. I think I would die of boredom making wine in California because it's <laughs> just too much sun for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> kind of being a little sarcastic. Too easy. Yeah. It's, no, too easy. it's too easy. It's too easy. But, yeah, the challenge is invigorating for sure. Um, we weren't expected to do this in this part of the world. Right. And a lot of people still don't believe that we can. And that's that really motivates me mm-hmm. to make the mm-hmm. best wines I can possibly make. They're missing out. Yeah. And uh, we, we pride ourselves on what we do. We make wines that are different than our West Coast uh, cohort. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're lower in alcohol. They don't sure. have as much extraction. They're actually really enjoyable with food. Um, and so all of that is what we, uh, we've embraced that sure. sense of balance that we can achieve. Right. You do see a lot of the same, uh, varieties though grown out here that the, the noble grapes are, um, you know, you see a lot of Merlot, you see a lot of Cabernet grown. Um, one thing I found interesting, um, Dr. Cook, you know, he didn't necessarily lay out a solution, but he did say, you know, there are going to have to come changes, maybe in what varieties we're, we're looking to grow in certain regions. He showed a map of areas of the world which might not be suitable mm-hmm. and new opportunities, new areas that might be. Um, mm-hmm. What's your take on that? I mean, you do see a lot of those common international varieties, but you do have people who are, you know, experimenting with other, um, I don't know if they're hybrids or just other varietals that are uh, lesser known. Mm-hmm. Well, it's... it's uh pretty common in the new world, which we call us, ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, the, in the wine uh, lingo, new world means the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, mm-hmm. South America. Um, and uh, those, those places had some native grapes, but not a lot. The ones that we had, uh, you don't typically associate with fine wine, at least <laughs> not yet. Okay. They used to be part of the... Uh, um, the Eastern wine production uh, over the last hundred years. In fact, the Ohio River Valley was one of the biggest wine producing uh, areas in the U.S. And mm-hmm. there were all grapes like Catawba and Concord and okay. Isabella and things that are derived from American grapes. Um, but uh, the classics like mm-hmm. Chardonnay, Cabernet, Riesling, all the noble varieties mm-hmm. uh, carry the market. And they sure. uh, are grown in all these other New World areas. And in fact, in a lot of Old World areas, those varieties are now starting to cross borders. Okay. Italy has a lot of French varieties right now that they've incorporated into their production. Oh, wow. Germany has incorporated some um, red French grapes in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, in, even in regions where warmer. they're not. Right. So those are the, those are the greats. Those yeah. are the classics. And so people... 
generally gravitate toward sure. that. Sure, yeah. They know what it's supposed to taste right. like. They know mm-hmm. what it pairs with. You know, they have a general understanding sure. of them. And the great thing about wine is that <clears throat> they don't taste the same, even though it's the same grape. Yeah. You put it in a different place, it creates a completely different wine. Sure. So it's not like it's too monotonous. There, there, there are a lot of variations of this. Um, the Rieslings and the Chardonnays and the Merlots that we make here are mm-hmm. nothing like uh, what, uh, what are found really anywhere else, especially on the West Coast. They're completely different animals. Right. Um, That's the biggest challenge when I was working in the tasting room. Uh, someone would order a, a Cabernet Sauvignon and be expecting to taste the same thing that they would find in California, mm-hmm. and you have to kind of talk them down and explain why it's not going to taste the same, and uh, you know attribute that to our climate. So it's it's fun. I mean, it's fun to yeah. taste, you know, and to compare and to see how those changes can yeah. can impact what's yeah. in your glass. Um, That's a challenge for us still. I <laughs> yeah, mean, for yeah. sure. Uh, we've worked hard at that. California mm-hmm. uh, has long defined what wine is supposed to be in the right. U.S. Right. When people say U.S. wine, they usually mean California. But right. that is changing. <clears throat> now yeah. we have Oregon, Washington, other states out west. And we have an, a thriving East Coast industry that's growing from yeah. really as far away as Vermont yeah. <laughs> down to the yeah. Carolinas. Right. Um, yeah, so I keep I keep finding wines from really unexpected places. Mm-hmm. I was up in Canada, so I think one of the winemakers yeah. who was at the lecture joked, "Like, oh, we'll have to pack up and move up north to uh, get get our long growing season, maybe in like fifty years." And I was laughing, but I I was up last fall and I tasted some great wine up there. I was yeah. pleasantly surprised. It's ten times as large as Long Island <laughs> yeah. in terms of the acreage. Yeah, and that that. Migration from one area to the other is really taking place out west. I mean, a lot of mm-hmm. California money is being invested into Oregon and Washington. Yeah, yeah. As that climate is also, re- they're dealing with their own effects of climate change. And we've heard some of that over the last couple of years, right. especially w- with regard to wildfires. But that area is also becoming very warm. And so I'm not sure <clears throat> their, the outlook there is mm-hmm. as favorable towards their future with regards to climate change as ours. Another thing that kind of came up, uh, I think it was Larry from over at Channing Daughters who, who said, who brought up the idea of like holding on to the, to the traditional uh, varieties. And he, you know, he brought up concerns with how do you market that to people? And I think Dr. Cook was like, yeah, you know, how do you tell someone to drink a Sagrantino over a Cabernet Sauvignon? Um, and then Alice Wise said, "You know, well, millennials don't want to don't want to drink their parents' Chardonnay." Um, That's true. So, which yeah, which is true. I, I see. You know, especially um, serving. You know, the the younger clientele who who would come in. You know, they they were more kind of apt to trying something they've never heard of. Um, what? Where do you see that going on the North Fork? Like, do you see? Do you grow anything that's lesser known, or? or? Well, we we do. Um, we're 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 getting into a, a bunch of different things. Uh, mm-hmm. We're planting a we planted a Spanish grape called Albarino. Okay. And another one going in the spring called Verdejo. Um, there's a very uh, little known French grape called Auxerrois, which is being planted this spring as well. So, yeah, we're getting into a little bit of that mm-hmm. Melon de Bourgogne, which is made made into Muscadet. Oh wow! In the Loire. Uh, and are these picked because of how they fare there? Or is it a similar climate? Like, what 
combination of both. Okay. They're 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 picked be, they're 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 picked because of their origins mm-hmm. of growing areas are similar, and also because we do have a trial vineyard through Cornell University that Alice Wise okay. is running that we can analyze and evaluate how these different vines grow over the course of a few years before you want to invest a lot of capital. Sure, um, sure. Plant however many acres of it. And right. I mean, getting into this is an expensive proposition. Yeah. So you want to make sure that you're planting a variety that has hope. Yes, right. At least, you know, <laughs> more than hope, hopefully. Uh, otherwise, you're you're shooting in the dark. So we know now what can grow. We, we have a yeah. lot better idea what we... Uh, what we believe is going to be successful than we did 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, That's right. for sure. Uh, <laughs> those early vineyards were just a, a massive experimentation. Yeah, definitely to a, to a shot in the extent. dark, right? And <clears throat> we kind of let um, natural evolution take its course, and we'll see, we've seen what works really well. Things like Merlot and Cabernet Franc, for example. Yeah. Sauvignon Blanc. Right. Do really well. And then they have to make really good wine. There's that second step that's very important. Very important. Um, but I do hear a lot, you know, uh, that that 90%, maybe even more than 90%, does happen in the vineyard, just from whether, I don't know how accurate you would say that is, but... It is. It is pretty accurate. It's a little cliche, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, what happens in the winery is uh, uh, we try not to screw that up. Yeah, <laughs> right. For the most part. Right, right. Um, but with, in terms of the given. varieties, I, I do think it's headed that way. I do think yeah. that we might, we may be seeing the beginning of um, changes in what the market is looking for. Right. I tend to think that in the future, if we can grow something that requires very little off-farm inputs, very little irrigation to none, sure. uh, zero pesticides, zero herbicides, um, I think that could be attractive to a lot of people, re- regardless of what the name of the variety is, as long as yeah. the wine is good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ultimately, it has to taste really good. Right. Because this is right. a hedonistic business to a large extent. We want to have a happy customer. Absolutely. Um, aside from, you know, maybe moving away from those varieties, um, what what other conversations are you having amongst the industry um, about, you know, your response to the changing climate? I know now... It, you might be riding on the success of the warmer temperatures, but um, are there any uh, initiatives? Well, Maybe the, with the sustainability group. The whole group is is really a response to this mm-hmm. in a in a very large, broad way. We're still trying to get the information. That was one of the reasons to get Dr. Cook in here. Um, there, are, there's a two prong approach to this whole thing. One is to attempt some possible mitigation. Yeah. And the second part is. How do we react and respond and try to plan ahead? And a lot of this is is way down the road. As sure, we saw. right. Um, most of the effects of climate change we're not going to even see in our lifetime. Yeah, that will be that negative. I should say we. Yeah, we, yeah. We may, but when we're talking about sea level rise in some areas, low low lying areas uh, off of southern Long Island, the, the mm-hmm. barrier islands. Uh, being prone to flooding and so forth, that's that's quite a ways down the road. Um, and th- that doesn't mean we don't want to start thinking about what we should do. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's clear that climate change is a man-made um, phenomenon. Yeah. 
I was um, really interested in um, a lot of um, Dr. Cook's graphs and his research really honed in on that period of time after 1980, mm-hmm. um, which is, I guess, when... I don't know if it was studied more or, or, or why that it was, but um, I just, that just always stuck with me. Um, and then especially when he showed off um, how much CO2 was actually, you know, in the atmosphere, you know, especially after, like, industrialization. and. Well, it's not just a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah, those numbers really are. Um, in order to really address this, I think we need to have... Uh, a, a, a countrywide understanding, mm-hmm. a national policy about it. When, when it continues to be a joke to some people, yeah. um, I don't think it's going to be very funny to our grandkids and great-grandkids, sadly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we need to get serious about it. It's no coincidence that we've seen all these things changing dramatically from the middle of the 1800s mm-hmm. and forward when mm-hmm. people started to use fossil fuels, industrialization took place, population grew dramatically. Um, shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Right. Uh, prior to that time, CO2 levels were more or less balanced. So it takes into account some of the natural cycles. Sure. But a natural cycle in climate overall, over a period of time, even 200 years is too small. We're talking about large swaths of time. Uh, so this has happened much too quickly for it to be completely natural. Right, right. And so we have to take some responsibility for it. Acknowledge through that. policy, through... Through policy. And it's time to get serious about it to try to mitigate it. When we talk about ways to fix it, the discussion inevitably goes to money. Mm-hmm. And how much is that going to cost? And how much is it going to cost to do this or build whatever kinds of... Uh, uh, you know, carbon tax people sure. push back on. Sure. People have accused, um, politicians have accused people of trying to make money on climate change, etc. Well, my response would be, how are we going to pay for the results of climate change? Yeah. How much is that going to cost? Repairing flooded land, moving people by the millions to different spots to live. Um Damage from storms, damage from fires, damage right. to agriculture, reduction in food supply. How much is that going to cost? Yeah. After so, how many times do we rebuild something, do we realize? Right. Hey, so from a purely yeah. economical standpoint, in yeah. my mind, yeah. it's cheaper to address it now. Right. And it, you know, look at it as an investment. Exactly. And, um, you know, it'll create jobs. It'll. But that's common sense. That really is not flying in Washington right now. Sadly. Not that much. Not when we uh, are trying to bring coal back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just kind of to wrap up, uh, you know, a, a lot of what you, you work with is, like, you, we, like we said, out of your control. Um, working in the, in the wine bus- business, you have to kind of be tough and resilient and, you know, ready to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, are you, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Are you, are you, deeply worried about the prognosis? Um, do you have anything new coming up? You know, are you with the Long Island Sustainable Wine Growing Group? Um, you know, are you focused on clean energy? Are you, are you, is that something you're looking at? I know a couple of vineyards are wind powered and mm-hmm. moving that way, but is that I, something the group is working on? I think it's all moving that way. Um, look, we're the only agricultural sector that's taken this on voluntarily mm-hmm. to try to, uh, manage ourselves, trying to 
police ourselves, essentially. Right. And so we're willing to do that. And um, I think overall, growing grapes is a little less intensive than yeah. other types of agriculture, thankfully. Maybe most people haven't even heard of the grapes that will be grown here in 50 years or 100 years. I wouldn't years be surprised. We're, we're actually starting to look at some of them this year at yeah. the research lab. Yeah. Um, oh. Most of them coming out of Europe for the same reasons. Um, disease resistance, mm-hmm. uh, drought resistant, and flavor, of course. So it's an ongoing project and something that we'll keep, we'll keep looking at. Absolutely. Well, cheers to that. Absolutely. Thanks again for coming in. Uh, We really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Tara.